Joe, you're looking pretty sharp, man. I like that jacket, man. I'm gonna have to wear one of those next time I come and preach. Um, I like the contemporization of uh, uh, Christmas music, but I like the traditional stuff too. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you. Oh, is Rael. This is the second uh, sermon in our Advent series. Um, uh, last week you had uh, Pastor Vince. This week you've got me. It's not an accident. We don't usually ask Pastor Nick to preach 10 weeks in a row. We usually, about every month or so, we try to get him off. Uh, but we felt like he was, the, he was clearly the best person to preach a material he had been meditating on and thinking about for last couple of years. And so you'll have Vince in, in last week and me, and next week Pastor Nick will be back, will be back with us. Um, uh, today we are going to, <laughs> you're a Badger fan, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. Uh, it's really cool when your, the, your alma mater, your school, can like get there. And uh, now I'm an Illinois folks. You, you, if, you're, if you're normal, if you're, if you're a regular here, you know, you know I'm always jabbing the Badger fans, even though I have no reason to, but my team is two and nine, you know? <laughs> two and nine, 11 and one, you know, it's a big difference there, it's a big difference. Uh, and so Badger fans, you ought to be proud. And even though you'll probably lose the bowl game, it'll still be a great year uh, after. <laughs> No, a great, a great, I have to admit, great year for the Badgers. Outstanding, outstanding year. Um, today, we're going to continue the second episode in our Upside Down Advent season, series, where we're looking at Jesus Christ and um, how he deals with uh, worldliness, uh, in particular among, uh, well, among both uh, Hebrews and, and we'll also deal with the Samaritan woman and how he gently um, encourages them towards godliness. Um, we're going to look at John 2, 23 through 31. Uh, if you'd like to read along with me, you can turn to page 16, 16 in your Bible. We're going to read 223 to 321. John 2.23 through John 3.21, a familiar passage that we're going to look at a slightly different way. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, he being Jesus, at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come for God, from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, 
Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. When I talk to Christians about um, their faith, um, those who've already come to faith, repented of their sins, accepted Christ as Savior, been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, they really understand that they're now expected to follow Jesus. They get that. They understand that there's grace and forgiveness when they stumble, and they get that they need to follow him. But where they struggle is the idea that they have to make disciples so that we're really comfortable. And I'm no exception to this. I'm really comfortable that I've got to follow Jesus. I'm less comfortable that I've got to make disciples, especially if you suggest to me that I actually need to be involved in, in evangelism. I get really intimidated. I get really scared. And I think the reason is, is that we need to take a closer look at this pa passage from the eyes of ourselves and the church and how disciples are made, how evangelism should be done. So that's the view that we're looking at this passage at today. And I want to say, here's the theme, the spiritual life must be modeled and articulated. It must be seen, and then it must be discussed. The spiritual life must be modeled. Let's talk about that first. John 2 and 23, Jesus and him modeling the faith, modeling the gospel, first and foremost. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, he being Jesus, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. John 3 and 2, he came to Jesus at night, this is, he is uh, Nicodemus, and said, Rabbi, teacher, you know you, we, that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. That is, that Jesus was 
loving and, and doing miraculous things selflessly on behalf of the people. And they knew that the, the average person didn't have the power to do these kinds of things. And they knew the grace with which he did them was atypical of human beings. And uh, Pastor Nick has talked about a living a life of, of substance. And here I want to talk about the, the, a commitment that Christians have to self-sacrificing love. But in particular, I want to focus on honoring and producing, um, uh, honoring, producing and serving more than receiving and consuming. I want to talk about this idea from Jesus, from his own mouth, Mark, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of you have dedicated your life to, to sacrificial service? That, that you recognize that you may be a stay-at-home mom or you may be a PhD uh, teaching humanities at UW. But whether if, in Christ, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or a PhD instructor, that your life is dedicated to serving God and serving others. How many of you have embraced that, that, that mentality? Uh, Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, puts it this way. Thy mind, heart, soul, and strength must ever search to find the way by which the road to all men's need of thee must go. That this is the highway of the Lord. It's no coincidence that the teachers and moms and PhDs and pastors and business people that dedicate their, their, their lives to serving others in Christ produce the most fruit. That's, no, that's the highway of the Lord. I was taught this in a, in a very humiliating way. So relatively early in my career at American Family, I was in Chicagoland and I was a sales manager and uh, my boss, the director, myself, and Babette, who worked in the marketing department, were doing a day-long training of every agent in our territory. It's about 200 agents and, the, and their sales managers. It was eight to four. It was grueling. Um, preaching two hours a day, two sermons, can be kind of tough. Doing it eight times. So if you train or if you're a teacher and you have to do this every day, Lord, have mercy on you, Lord. I know that, you, that, that God blesses you for that. It's tough. It's grueling to teach all day and be on. And so we had been on teaching all these folks, very important material, we thought we were doing a good job. It's about four o'clock, it was the last session, my boss was gonna teach it, and I was like tired, all of us were tired. Babette was tired, I, my, my boss was tired. And my, my boss was like, you know what? The seating is set up in theater style. I wanna turn this into pods. And you should have seen my face, I'm tired. I just started grumbling like, oh Lord. Like Fred Flintstone, rack and shrack and you know, I don't want any more leftovers from Wilbur. You know, anyway, so that, that kind of attitude. And it was really apparent. But Babette was totally different. She smiles and she says, no problem. Let's get right on it. And she goes and she starts moving tables around and she's talking. And after a while, my attitude picked up. I was like, no, this is not that bad. You know, I don't have to do any more speaking. I just need to rearrange these tables. And she goes and the whole place just kind of lightens up. Now, here's the thing. My non-Christian boss, I have been witnessing to for two, three years, and I hope that that attitude of grumbling service wasn't typical, 
of how I served? I hope it wasn't. I, I can't say for sure. But who do you think would have been better received being able to share Jesus, Babette with her cheerful, willing service, or me, the grumbling, complaining servant, right? Here's the deal. We talked earlier about the Jesus lunch. They have poured out love, I, I think at least three years, both fall and spring, uh, meals out of their own pocket. They, they've served more meals than they've had a chance to serve gospel. Lots of meals, lots of love has provided the way for a little gospel message. But now the Lord has opened up a window for the ministry so that now people voluntarily are coming to a private place where they can share the gospel more clearly. Model the gospel from love, preach the gospel with your mouth. Only a gospel we model with our lives will penetrate the skeptical hearts of those we desire to reach. That perhaps was Jesus's, his, his top secret, his secret weapon, was that he loved people and he didn't come to this earth to be served, though he was a king. This is the thing that astounds me the most about God. And I, I, I'm in America, and so I'm not around monarchy much, but I kinda occasionally when when I get pictures of the British monarchy or other monarchies in Europe or Africa, and I get this sense that, that there's a privileged class, the, the people bow and the people serve. Not so with Jesus. He was a monarch who served all of the subjects. And not so with us as his messengers to, to, to make disciples. That as a mom with our neighbors, as a PhD at the school, whatever your career capacity, uh, we, we pay as much attention in modeling and giving and serving more than we do with receiving. And that produces an openness where the gospel can be shared. The gospel must be accurately modeled. So the spiritual life must be modeled and articulated I want to talk about the articulation of the gospel, the spoken gospel. I want to say four things about it, that the gospel is atypical, that, that the spiritual life is not like a typical American life. I want to dive deeply into that, to what I mean there. The spiritual life is volitional. It's not compulsory. Nobody has to, uh, has to be immersed in the, the church. We have to be immersed in American culture. Yeah, if you're here in America, you have to be under our certain, uh, our president and our Senate, our mayor, that you don't have a choice in that. You're gonna be immersed and impacted by the culture. Not so with the kingdom of God. You've gotta to choose to become a Christian. The spiritual life transforms your intellect. It transforms the, your, your entire way of thinking. We wanna talk about that. And that it's transparent, it's hidden, it's open. It's light on the hill. It's salt of the earth. So we want to look at these things. These are the four things we need to articulate or communicate in our gospel message. First, the spiritual life is atypical. Jesus uh, says in John 3, 5 through 7, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now, he's talking about the difference. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. I saw that in, uh, in Babette's life. I knew I was being fleshly when I started grumbling and complaining and that, that that was not what I was called to be. But I saw her, the spirit in her giving, living and pouring itself out. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised, Jesus is talking to uh, this teacher of the law, expert in the scriptures, member of the 70 member male leadership group who, who knew the scriptures. He said, you should not be surprised that the that spiritual life is totally different than, than the typical carnal, normal human life. That the spiritual life is different in quality than the human life. You must be born again. We are immersed in a culture where people are dedicated to created things and what we can get for ourselves rather than the creator and what we can contribute to others. In a world we have created for ourselves to ensure the expression and gratification of our human desires, a way of life that finds pleasure and joy in, in virtue, in truth, in goodness, in joy, in love, in perseverance, and in faith, that is totally different than the way of the world. So Nicodemus was looking for his Messiah to come. And he went to Jesus and he recognized that he was from God. And what he was expecting was a Messiah who would free the Jewish people from the tyranny. And I want to get you to, uh, to, to understand uh, the oppression and the direness of their situation. Think of the Jews in captivity in Israel. Um, think of any oppressed people in, at any time in history, and you'll understand, you'll empathize with how the, the Jewish people thought. And so when, when they saw Jesus, they wanted to know, are you the king that is gonna restore the rule of God and the perfect kingdom right now so that we no longer have to serve our oppressors. And he was more concerned, and it's, it's understandable, with being free from the tyranny of Rome than being free from the tyranny of sin. I like the way Nick talks about this in, in substance. He says it this way. I fear the average American Christian does not hate or want to kill their indwelling sin half as much as he might a Muslim extremist. And as I think about this in our contemporary context right now, I wonder if the average American Christian is more concerned about whether North Korea's missile capabilities can hit us in Madison or in Chicago or the, dis the distractions and the, and the things, the ways in which our hearts are turned away from God in our, in our normal average life. Which of the two is a greater concern for you? You know, Jesus loved the Romans just as much as the Jews. There's a story of the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and he says, there's a servant in, in my household who's sick. And I know you can heal him. Jesus, won't you come? Jesus says to him, I'll come right away. The servant says, that the Roman centurion, now listen, he's of the oppressor class. He's the ruler. And he, but he sees something that Nicodemus couldn't see. Come on, talk with me. 
Nicodemus is the ruler and leader of the people, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he could not see that Jesus was Lord. But this Roman, a supporter of the temple, could see that this was indeed the Messiah. He said, listen, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And here's what Jesus says, you Roman, I have never seen this kind of faith amongst the the Israel and and any of the Hebrews have I seen this faith. Go, your servant will be here. Your faith, your faith has made you whole. And so this Christian life, Jesus loved the Romans just as much as his own people. The image of God is in all kinds of people. And so our Christian life is, is atypical. It allows us to love people that oppress us, come on. So we have no reason for our historical biases, whatever they may be. That in Christ, something new has happened. When we consider how Jesus has overlooked our sins, overlooked our shortcomings, continues to overlook our sins and shortcomings, and continues to receive us in his family, it allows us to overlook the sins of our enemies. And so we can say along with him that we can love our animals. The Christian life is atypical. So the spiritual life is atypical. And then secondly, the spiritual life is volitional. That is, you choose it. John 3, 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is Numbers 21. And God has delivered the people from Egypt with plagues and power and, and, and turning a sea on its head so the people could, trans- and then feeding them with manna. And he tells them what he's doing. He's preparing them to enter the kingdom of God. And and the people are grumbling and complaining about the food and every manner of evil. And so to discipline them, God sends poisonous snakes that that bite them. And some people are dying. People are dying all around. And the people repent. They say, Moses, we know this this is our fault. We repent. Lord Jesus, God save us. Save us, Lord. And God speaks to Moses and he says, tell them. Make a snake of bronze and put it on a pole. And anybody who looks at the snake, even though they were, they were bitten by a poisonous snake and should die, they will live. And so, and so by faith, now let me tell you, if you were bitten by a snake, Joe, and if your head was down, you're gonna die. You had to, by faith, look at that snake on a pole. And so it is with repentance and faith. When you hear the gospel message, you can hear the gospel message and you can say, oh, that seems good. And Jesus, he seems, he seems nice. But if you don't repent from your sins and confess with your mouth, you will not be born again. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. He talks about having to be born of water and spirit. Here's what I think this means. Remember John the Baptist, who was doing a baptism of of water, of repentance of sins. So I believe this is talking about uh, the water baptism as well as the spiritual baptism. The water baptism, cleansing from your sins. The spiritual baptism, being born into a new life, okay? That's what I think this best means. Other interpretations would be this, that water and spirit are the same, that water is a a similar term as spirit, or that water is the word. You're saved by believing the word and receiving the spirit. It doesn't matter. All of those are good, and orthodox views on this passage, but here's the main point. 
Jesus died for your sins, rose to grant you a new life, and you receive it by faith. That's the gospel. This must be confessed. Now, um, lately, uh, last two weeks, I've done three funerals. And what I'm coming to recognize is that one of the highest honors that pastors have are to, to help um, people understand and process death. But I have found that I not only bless those families that I serve in this way, it also reminds me of whether or not I believe in the resurrection or not. Every time I have to go through a funeral, it reminds me, do I believe that there is a life that's better than the one that I'm in that Jesus has prepared for me? Do I really believe to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord? Because you can't keep telling people that if you don't believe it. It's really difficult. And so my sister, who's 61 years old, had been battling kidney disease. She lives in Bremerton, Washington, and heart disease for quite the last five years. And last time I talked with her, she told me, Lloyd, I'm tired, I'm tired of going to kidney dialysis three times a week, and I just want you to take care of my, she has, she has two kids in their early 40s. Two kids, she's got five grandchildren, and um, my niece's uh, oldest daughter married a Navy man, and now she, she, and she has two small children, so she had two great-grandchildren. So I go to the funeral, I choose this message, about family, I choose a message out of Psalm 128. I wanna talk about how Jesus blesses us with a, a godly family, that if we fear the Lord, he will, he will bless you through your work. He will bless you through a wife and children, and that he will bless you in, in terms of how you serve in, in worship. In our context, that would be the church, in those contexts, it would be at the temple, and that he would bless the community through you, that the Lord would bless you in your ordinary life. In, in the African-American community, that's an important message, that God has come to bless you through your nuclear family that the husband and wife represent Christ and the church, and that children and raising children is a blessing, and that serving God is a, a blessing and a joy, that that's the best life that there can be. So I came and I was ready to preach until I saw my nephew come in to the building. And my nephew has lived a hard life, uh, wayward, worldly, self-directed, self-destructive. And he walked in and he looked at his, his mom at the casket who he hadn't talked to even though they live in the same time he hadn't talked to in two or three months and he starts wailing. And I was ready to go until then. I, had, I, was, I was undone, I had to go out and leave. I had to go out and leave. This is the nephew that when I came to faith in Christ and I was raised a Catholic, came to faith in my early 20s, this was the nephew that I uh, gave the gospel to and that we were baptized in the same Baptist church in Maywood, Illinois on the same day 30 years ago. And his life is a wreck. It's a wreck. And I see him come in and I, it just wrecked me. And I pulled it together and I preached that gospel message that I had. And, and four or five people raised their hand for salvation 
including him again. And then after the sermon, I spent most of my time, I was only there two days with this nephew, Chris, trying to build him up in the faith. And afterwards, he sends me a, a messenger message. And he says, Lord, I, I just, I thank you so much that you came. I want you to know, I, I love you. I gave him a little financial help. I really appreciate you. He, he sent me this message two times. The first time I said, you know, no problem. The second time I said to him, you know what, I really appreciate that you're thankful. But really what I want is for you to be thankful to the Lord that sent me there to minister to you. I want you to be thankful to the Lord who's used me to model, though it be imperfectly, the gospel to you and to be a blessing to you where I could. I want you to be thankful to him because he's the one that did the work. That's, that's my prayer be because he's got to believe. Being thankful to me, that won't get him very far. Being thankful in the Lord Jesus, being willing to serve, giving his life to Jesus. And I told him that the Lord, you see, he is your life and the length of your days. Yeah, an uncle could help you a little bit, but an uncle can't save your soul. An uncle can't, can't sustain you here on earth. The, an uncle can't make you fruitful. An uncle can't help you uh, uh, take care of a wife, raise a family, keep a job, have good friends, um, have a meaningful, fruitful substance. An uncle can't do that. Only Jesus in you can pull that off. So, but, but, but all of this is volitional. I, I can want faith for my children. I can want it for our friends. But the person must believe, must confess with their mouths, and believe with their heart. So the spiritual life must be, is atypical. It's volitional. And the spiritual life transforms the intellect. Jesus is talking specifically to the religious, religious leaders, but also to the average Hebrew. He says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, Nicodemus was in a better position than the Roman centurion. He knew the scriptures. He knew that Moses prophesied of this one who would come. And yet he still did not recognize his Savior and his Lord. And it's because that he, he could not or did not believe in him. And so we can, and it's important for us to study and be knowledgeable and intelligent in the things of, of wisdom and ideas and practice and science. These are really good, but we will still be ignorant in the eyes of God unless we confess Jesus as Lord. We won't know the foundations of wisdom unless we believe in Jesus Christ. You won't understand the gospel. You can study the Bible till you're blue in the face. But until you believe, you won't really be able to understand. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. That's what he said to the Hebrews. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, that, that the, 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 what God does is he totally transforms our way of thinking. He says to us, in verse 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That the gospel thinking 
is dramatically different. Here's the thing. I am 53 years, years old. Woe to me when I get tired of coming to the church and listening to Nick's preaching or events or whoever the guy's preacher is. Woe to me, uh, I'm a morning meditation guy. Woe to me when I get tired of reading my Psalms and reading the scriptures in the morning. Woe to me when I get tired of praying with my wife. Woe to me when I get tired of going to my small group on Sundays. Woe to me when I don't participate in the disciplines that are designed to make me godly, to make me holy. Because the mind of Christ is totally different in all areas of the, of the world. Towards ideas, the mind of Christ makes us love the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Are you like Romans, uh, are you like Psalms 1? You meditate on the Word of God and you see that it makes you fruitful? Are you tired of producing fruit in, in Christ? Is it tedious for you to, to read and to think deeply on the scriptures and, and to study the word of God? The mind of Christ creates, makes in us a love of God. It's different from uh, others who, my vision is really bad here, prefers thinking about physical, natural, and practical things. And so the emphasis for us is not as much on. In fact, the, through the word of God, it frames the way we think about science. It frames the way we think about philosophy. It frames the way we think about life. It changes the way we think about family. We see our families as a God-given stewardship. We don't worship our families. We don't see having a family as a necessary thing. We don't see having a family as a trifling thing. I was talking to my nephew. And uh, one of my nephews is doing well. He's got a scholarship to Eastern Washington in track. He's a bright young man, knows Jesus. And I was asking him, I knew his father from Chicago. I was asking, how's your father doing? And he's saying, he ain't changed one bit. I barely talked to him. He's still making children out of life, out of wedlock. For him, a family is a trifling thing. He doesn't look at a woman he hasn't married a woman and looked at her and say, she represents the church. He doesn't, she's not a woman that looks at her husband and say, he represents the Lord. He, they don't see the gospel in the family. We look at these things totally different. When we look at our work, we see that the, 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 the creation mandate to rule and to create and to, and to have an order. We don't see a way for me to just take care of my financial needs or, or my needs for esteem about our work. We see something much more important going on that gives dignity to our work, whether we are a stay-at-home mom or a PhD, MBA, president of a, of a company. We look at these things totally different. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see Lord and Savior. We don't see a prominent historical figure. We see the one who, who's created life and brings meaning to life and who will judge the living at the dead when we talk about Jesus. What I want to say to you is the spiritual life transforms our minds. It changes the way we think about everything. We should be careful in our times. We should be able to see the difference in the way we process information, the way we think about things. We should be, think differently about hope and life than non-Christians because that's what Jesus has given us. He's given us the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ. 
So the spiritual life must be articulated. When we articulate it, we want to say that it's atypical, that it's volitional, that you have to choose Christ, that it changes our minds. And lastly, the spiritual life is transparent. It's, it's out there for all to see. John 3, 20 through 21. Now, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that in it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I like the way Nick talks about this. He talks about what coming to Christ does, what the Spirit and the Word does. He says, when the divine power of the Spirit takes God's Word and His knowledge in us through faith, the result is a spiritual substance, a growth in love and, and perseverance and kindness and godliness that is, that is seen in virtuous human action. That is, the way that we go about our day-to-day routine matters in the kingdom of God, that we ought to pay careful attention. It ought to point to Jesus. It ought to say that we are from God. And, and godliness consists of this cycle that we need to be, pay attention, careful attention to. That there is a daily cycle of faith, of understanding, and of obeying by the Spirit. And I like the way that Jesus reminds us of this. He says that we need to take up our crosses daily. We need to recognize that we are different and, and, and confess Christ as Lord each and every day as a part of our a normal rhythm. Because we live in the light. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons that we have small groups, one of the reasons that each of us needs to have a spiritual friend that we allow to look at our lives and speak to us about whether we're living according to the faith we profess and who we can confess our sins to so that they can not look down upon us but pray for us and help us and encourage us to be well is because we want to live in the light. I don't think we'll live in the light well, that is to obey God's word well, walk in the spirit as we ought to, unless we have a few folks around us that we can confess to when we are stepping out of line or that we allow into our lives to tell us that we are stepping out of line. We'll pray for us and encourage us to get back in line. I want to suggest to you uh, that one of the reasons right now we're experiencing this great problem with sexual misconduct, especially among very powerful men, is first of all, it is so worldly common that powerful people take advantage of the weak. This is so like, this is so like typical of sinners. This is how we do out of Christ. And what's, what's interesting, what I think we should learn from is some of these figures are household folks who people feel like they know. There's no way this person would be like that. I, I drink my morning coffee with them. 
And these folks have done a wonderful job of crafting a brand that makes them 20 million a year and done a very poor job of dealing with their character. It takes Christ and the formational community and a willingness to live in the light, not just when the TV cameras are scrolling, but in the private rooms of your lives in order for you to build your character. See, Christians are in the character game. We're not in the brand building game. Character first, love, faithfulness, perseverance, courage first, and then reputation. So our reputation is gonna take a hit. The, the world is gonna see us as bigots. They're gonna misinterpret what we do. So you, you, our brand might take a hit, but let not our, 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 our character take a hit. Let our character flourish in Christ. So spiritual life must be modeled and articulated. It is uh, atypical, it's different to, to believe that love and character and virtue brings joy and goodness is totally different than the world. It's voluntary. It transforms the way you think about everything and it's lived publicly for God's glory. And we need to communicate that. This is the, these are the things that we should communicate when we share the gospel. And so Jesus, you notice he didn't tell Nicodemus, you know what Nicodemus, you're doing pretty good. He told Nicodemus, you ought to know these things. You need to be changed. You need to be born again. You need to, to, to confess Christ as Lord. You need to live a transparent life. He doesn't just, he doesn't tell him that, hey, listen, just, just you know, just, just, just say that you believe in going about your business. No, Jesus changes the, the way he thinks about everything. He wanted to change his whole life. And we need to be honest with our message by first being honest with our life. And so uh, uh, Nick's uh, book on substance really has had a very positive effect on me. I read it first in July, August when he was on sabbatical and primarily so that I could lead the staff in discussions. We felt like, you know, we probably should read this stuff and talk about it ourselves before we try to lead you in it. And so I read it first in the summer. And then I realized as Nick was preaching that I needed to read it again. So about 10 days ago, I've been reading one chapter in fact, a day. In fact, this today I, I read The Formational Community, which is his last chapter of the book, and then I read, read Calvary, which is his appendix. I finished it the second time again today. And I finished it because I don't want this call to godliness to get stale in my heart. I want to develop, I, I felt as if I didn't have the right vigilance or the, 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 the passion for, for righteousness that, that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter four. I felt like I didn't have this, 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 this desire and passion for, for righteousness the way I should. And I feel like for a while now, the elders have been talking about um, our disappointment in seeing uh, as many uh, non-Christians join our fellowship. And Nick and I had a real candid conversation about this. And I was talking to him about systems, but we need to do some different systems and I need to get the small groups to think differently. And Nick was like, no Lord, I think we just gotta be different. 
I feel like we've got to be more substantive. We've got to be more godly. We've got to understand, and we've got to desire this. Like uh, One of the things I like about uh, the quarterback of the Patriots, Tom Brady, he's got five Super Bowls. He is dead set. He wants a sixth Super Bowl like it's his first Super Bowl. And that's the approach by which, and if I was you, I'm not a better. I wouldn't bet against him getting a sixth Super Bowl at age 40. I wouldn't bet against him. Why? Because he's very talented and totally committed. What I want to say to you that God has gifted the church. We have his power in us. We have all kinds of talent and ability. What we now need to do is take our devotion. We need to put our hearts into it and through gracious striving, we need to grow in godliness. And as we do that, we will more perfectly model Christ's kingdom and we will more perfectly preach Christ's gospel and and then we will see a greater harvest in the kingdom. And I like the way Nick talks about this near the end of this book. This is something that's in his uh, formational chapter. He says, if the spiritual substance, health, and beauty of our church cannot shine with the radiance of a city on a hill, we have no change worth offering the world. So I want to remind you to grow in substance, to be a better and stronger model of the gospel, and then to preach it faithful. Let us pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Lord Jesus, uh, there's certain messages that we have in your word that we just can't brush over and then go on to the next one kind of like it's, uh, like it's dinner turning into breakfast uh, with, without paying attention to whether we've really been able to eat it and digest it and whether it's really impacted our lives. And I just believe, Lord, that if we want to be like you, evangelistic, that we've got to pay attention to our, our character in Christ. We've got to be like you if we want to do the work you did. So bless your church today. That we would desire righteousness with all of our hearts. And walk it out faithfully, even as you did. In Christ's name, we pray. We have.